Okay, let's get started. Now, if you can't notice, I don't know how good you can see, but there is a pretty solid brownish hue to my skin. Okay, that is a telltale sign of Italian lineage. Okay, there are other stereotypes that go along with having some Italian blood. I have had friends that have nicknamed me all kinds of things, some I can't say, but I've had my friends, the one place they used to call me their olive-skinned friend. That was my nickname. Hey, olive-skinned friend, that's what they would call me. But there is another stereotype that I want to tell you that I will say in general terms for Italian folks can be true. Have you ever heard the phrase that Italian people wear their emotions on their sleeve? I'm sure most of us have heard of that. I will attest and say that there is some truth to that. Now, how do I know? Because I can be guilty of it at times. Uh, you can say, these last few weeks, I have been wearing some of my emotions on my sleeve. Uh, and I will be honest with you, I've, I've been a little bit grumpy lately. I, I have been a little bit on edge, a uh, little edgy. There's just been a little chip on my shoulder. I'm sure if you talk with my wife, she will attest that I can be difficult to live with at times. But lately, it has been a little more pronounced because I've been wearing my emotions on my sleeve, been a little bit anxious, and I'll tell you why. Let me explain. When I was young and just graduated high school and wet behind the ears, I had no plan for my life. I was very immature, pretty much just a complete idiot, had no direction whatsoever. And everyone said, oh, you got to go to college. So, all right, I went to college and only went two years. I, I got an associate's degree. I did not complete the four-year bachelor's degree. And really, the reason for that is I did not have my act together, just pure and simple. I did not. I was very young, very immature, and I did not see the value in education, in educating myself and going on to get that bachelor's degree. Did not see the value in it, so I just said, eh, heck with it. I'll, I'll go out and I'll just start working. So I never completed that. Well, fast forward 20-some odd years, and this is a couple years ago now, a brother of my, my brother sent me a, a program tailored for people like me, people that had a two-year associate's degree, and this program was for people who had that and could go on and get their four-year degree. Man, I, I thought, oh, that, that would be quite an accomplishment, you know, I, that would be something I'd be interested in. And now that I'm older and a little more mature, I, I see the value there is in, in educating oneself. So at the time, uh, the place I was working for, I, I presented it to my, my manager, who was an awesome person. And, man, he was just, Jason, you need to do this. You need to complete this. You need to do this. I strongly suggest that you do this thing. So I even took it a step further and spoke with the director of the facility. And she said, Jason, you need to do this thing. You, you need to complete this. You need to. And they even had a program where they would, I, I've preached a little bit about some of this stuff before. They had a program that would reimburse me the tuition costs 
if I produced certain grades. So they would even pay for it. So they, they were really strongly encouraging me to go on and complete. Take these classes, get the schooling that you need, and complete your degree and earn your bachelor's degree. So, you know, at, at this place that I worked, they really liked me. They, they sewed into me. They, they didn't mind at all paying for some of my tuition. They didn't mind it. They, they like it when their employees educate themselves. They like it when they show some initiative, a little bit of ambition. They like that stuff. They like seeing that stuff in their people, so they took to it, and they very much, very strongly encouraged it. And really, the way the world works, there, there is opportunity afforded to those that have the college degrees. Amen? That's just the way the world works. Other opportunities can be available. I've lost jobs in competition with other individuals because they have had certifications. They have had degrees that I did not have. I've lost jobs. I'll tell you firsthand that's how it works. But when the, my company saw this, it, it, they saw ambition. And they saw a little bit of gumption. Therefore, they said, Jason, do this thing. Jason, this will be good for you in your career here. We like this. We want to see this. We encourage it. So I went for it. Re-enrolled after 20-some year absence from school. I re-enrolled, got accepted, and I began to slowly chip away at it, just part-time. You know, please understand, I can't do it full bore. I'm working full-time, got a family and involved with all kinds of things. I can't do it full-time, so I slowly chip away at it part-time. Well, most of you know that place, the facility that I worked for, they went away. They relocated after a year of having at it and doing a few classes and getting a little bit of momentum. It all came to an abrupt stop, and they were gone. They left, left town. Well, I, many of you know that's when I came on here at the church. It's almost been a year already. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm close I'll keep going. Bless God, I'll just keep going. So I did. I kept going. Now, this is where it starts going awry, okay? This is why I said I'm, I opened up with I've been a little bit grumpy lately, okay? It's hard work. It is hard work. Okay, it's, it's not like I'm sitting around all the time at home with nothing to do thinking, I wish I had a book thicker than the Bible to read, a very dry material. It's not like I've had all that time on my hands. You have to find the time. Listen to me now. I've written papers. I've written numerous reports. I've done projects. I've done loads of assignments. I've done case studies. I've read all kinds of books. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. It can be stressful. And to be done in a, within a certain time frame, I have to take a summer course. First time I ever got to go to school in the summer. Actually, it starts tomorrow. That's why I've been a little bit edgy lately. Because of all this, that it costs me a lot of money, costs me a lot of effort and energy. And needless to say, it has crossed my mind to just be done with it. And after all, the reason why I started, the, the promises, the carrots dangled. Jason, there's going to be lots of opportunities for you. Jason, you can work yourself up. 
Jason, these positions will become available to you that aren't available to you now. They're all gone. That company's gone. They left. Why am I doing this in the first place? There is no more promise of better position for me. I'm not going to become a bishop here at New Hope. Whatever in the world comes next after pastor. There's no more money going to come my way if I finish this thing. Can't say, hey, Pastor Joe, I got my degree. I need $10,000 more a year. It doesn't work that way in a church setting. There's no carrots out there dangling for me to reach out and grab. Those opportunities, they're gone. For me to become manager, for me to become director, they're gone. My life took a different turn. So I have wondered... Why bother with this? You know, I could alleviate myself a lot of trouble, a lot of stress, save a lot of money if I just said no more. Why put myself through the stress of all this? Why do all this reading and studying and writing? Do you know how many things I've written? People might say, hey, yeah, but, but you're close, Jason. That's all well and good. You're not the one doing all the work. It's easy for you to say. You might say, yeah but, yeah, but Jason, you can have this bachelor's degree. And that's true, but I'm not going to come to New Hope and work any harder than what I have planned. I'm going to give myself to this, whether I have a piece of paper to show for it or not. It has crossed my mind to just quit. I mean, aren't, don't they teach us to weigh the benefits with the cost? Don't they tell you to weigh the investment with the return on investment? I should just maybe alleviate myself of the stress associated with all this and just be done with it. So that's why I've been a little bit grumpy lately, because this class starts tomorrow. It's not an easy one. It's a difficult one. Tons of reading, tons of formulas. That's why I've been grumpy lately. But I came across a scripture that straightened me out. How many of you know that this Bible, it straightens you out when you go awry? Amen. How many of you know that this Bible, it reproves you? It corrects you. It instructs you. When you get a little bit off course, God will manifest something out of this book and say, hey, let me set you straight again. That's exactly what this book does. The Scripture is there to straighten you out. The Scripture is there to straighten out your bad attitude, to readjust you, to give you a fresh new focus. And that's what this Scripture did that I came across. Now, I will read it in a bit. It is found in 1 Corinthians. But before I read it, let me explain to you a little bit of the background leading up to the reasons why the Apostle Paul says what he says, which I will read shortly. Now, before we read the Scripture, Corinthians is an epistle from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Where's Corinth? It's in Greece. Okay, so we need to understand some of this stuff. Greece had this new, fresh church, Christian church in it, coming from a background of all kinds of paganism. I think if I read correctly that they used to worship this female goddess named Venus and all kinds of these false gods because they came from paganism. That's what 
ruled the land at that time. So Paul, and a dispute arises within the Christians, the new Christians at this church in Corinth. So Paul writes them, because there's things going on in this church. Paul writes this epistle to send to them to straighten some things out, to, to expound on some things. Now it was a common practice of theirs, coming from this pagan background, to sacrifice meat and food and animals to false gods, to idols. Okay, so here's this Christian church in this pagan land. There's some new converts and this dispute arises within them over eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. Okay, for example, maybe, maybe a, a new Christian goes to a restaurant back in those days and they serve them a steak. Well, maybe the steak or the cow that that steak came from, maybe its blood was used in a, in a paganistic ritual. You know, this blood was poured out on an altar of some sort of pagan god or whatever it was. That's what they mean when it's talking about that meat was offered to these false gods. So that's what was happening. And Christians at that time, they would go to a restaurant or to a marketplace and they would buy food and the food... A lot of it had been sacrificed to these idols. And a dispute arose, and you can read all this in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. I'm not going to read all those scriptures to you. You can read it for yourself. But a dispute arose in that freshly planted church that, hey, you can't eat that food. You can't eat that food. You can't touch that food. It will defile you because it has been used in some sort of pagan ritual. Well, some people said, yeah, you can eat it. Well, some of the Christians said, no, you can't. So a dispute arose. That is why Paul addresses it in his epistle in Corinthians. He writes to the church and says, let me straighten you out on this stuff. So now you know some of the background of the, the scripture that I'm going to read to you here shortly. Of why he writes what he writes. Because this dispute arose amongst the Christians. Some say you could eat it. Some say you couldn't eat it. Some said you were loud. Some said, no, I'm not touching it. That will defile you. Others are like, no, that's not a big deal. So Paul, in these chapters that I just mentioned to you, he clarifies them. And he starts out by saying, hey, what is an idol, Christians? It's nothing. It's a piece of wood. It's a hunk of brass. It's a hunk of gold. That's all that an idol is. It's a nothingness. So when they offer this food, to these gods, they're offering them to nothing. What do we believe? We believe in one God, the Hebrew God, the God of the Bible. There is only one God. So when they're offering these sacrifices up, they're offering it to nothing. So go ahead and eat it. Eat it. If it's in front of you, thank God for it and partake of the food because they've offered it to nothing. We believe in one God. Stand strong in what you believe and it will not defile you. Eat it because they're offering it to nothingness. But, he says, if it offends a weaker brother, then refrain from it because you don't want to damage that weaker person. For conscience sake, don't damage that person. Refrain from it. It's talking about some of the liberties we have in Christ Jesus. Now he 
finally sums the whole topic up with the scripture that I want to read to you. And remember, this is the scripture that straightened me out when I had disputings going on within my heart, within my, should I continue with all this studying and paying all this money out and all this work? Should I yes, should I no? When disputing arose within me, and the Apostle Paul sums it up by, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Here is the summation of it. He says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do it to the glory of God. Boy, I read that scripture, felt like Mike Tyson punched me in the belly. It hit me like a ton of bricks, like maybe, just maybe, I should educate myself and finish this thing for the glory of God. Maybe, just maybe, I shouldn't do it for a better position. Maybe, just maybe, I shouldn't complete this thing for more money or more prestige or to add a title to my name. Maybe I shouldn't do it for notoriety. Maybe I shouldn't do it for opportunities that it will provide me. Maybe I should do it for the glory of God. Maybe that's why I should do it. Well, I took, the Bible took me and straightened me right out and said, Jason, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Solely for the glory of God. For no other reason but to give Him glory. Paul clarifies their arguments about the eating and the drinking. But then he adds that part right there in the middle that says, or whatever you do. Meaning, whatever in the world your hand sets to do, do it to the glory of God. I don't care what it is that you do in here this morning, what your profession is. Do it to the glory of God. If you sell insurance, sell it to the glory of God. If you flip burgers, flip them to the glory of God. If you preach, preach for the glory of God. If you sing, sing for the glory of God. Whatsoever your hand sets itself to do, do it to the glory of God. If you teach, teach to the glory of God. Whatever you do with your life, do it to the glory of God. If you're a parent, parent to the glory of God. If you're a builder, build to the glory of God. Whatsoever things you do, do it for the glory of God. Listen now, if you accomplish something, accomplish it for the glory of God. If you succeed at something, succeed at it for the glory of God. If you have an achievement, achieve it for the glory of God. Listen, if you attain something, attain it for the glory of God. If you finish something, finish it for the glory of God. Why? Because He's worthy of receiving all of the glory that we can muster up and give to Him. We are called to give God glory. That is the reason we're here, is to reflect glory back upon this wondrous God that we serve. That is what the Christian life is all about, is glorifying God. Can anybody hear me this morning? Listen, I, I don't know about you, but I want to glorify God. When I first walked up here, I told you I preach, not because it's my job, because I want to, I get to. I come to church because I get to. I sing because I want to, not because I have to. 
I have a genuine desire to please God. I long to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. I long to hear those words. Oh, I want to please him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 2, when Solomon sets about to build the house of God, in verse 5, 2 Chronicles 2, 5 says, In the house which I build is great, for great is our God above all gods, but who is able to build a house for him, seeing the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifices before him? Solomon is saying, Heaven fails to contain God. And Solomon goes on, takes it a step further, and even says, Heavens of heavens can't contain God. Meaning the entire universe cannot contain this God that we serve. I want to glorify that God. Heaven is unable to box God up. It's unable to contain Him. You try to put God in heaven, He'll blow right out of it because He's too big. He's too magnificent. The Bible says heaven cannot contain God. The whole universe cannot contain God. I want to glorify Him. That is the God that I get to serve. Isaiah describes God in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. He says, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told to you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He that sits upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretch out the heavens as curtains and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. That is the God that I serve. That is the God that I want to reflect glory upon Him with my life, whatever you set your hands to do. Isaiah says, oh, He sits upon the circle of the earth. The heavens is His throne and the earth is His footstool. He is worthy of all the glory that we can give Him. I don't care what your occupation is this morning. Give Him glory with it. Don't matter to me what your Give Him glory. Isaiah says the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. We always think, well, men inhabit the earth. You know what? So do 150-ton blue whales. They're the inhabitants of the earth. They're like grasshoppers to God. He can just go to a 150-ton blue whale and fling it out of his way because it's like a grasshopper to him. That's the magnificence of God. Man, hippopotamuses. Giraffes. And them things are like grasshoppers to him. That's the God that I serve and that I want to glorify. I want to glorify God. And don't come at me saying, I know you're getting legalistic now. You're trying to work your way into heaven. No, I'm not. I want to. I want to do this stuff. Talking about the Bible says, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. I love this thing. I love what this word says in it. I love it. To me, it's, it's life. There's no legalism involved in that. I want to do this stuff. I want to obey him. I want to do the things that he says to do. Why? Because a 150-ton blue whale is as a grasshopper to him. 
That's how big he is. Why? Because heaven can't contain him. The heaven of heavens can't contain him. God doesn't even fit into our universe. The whole world's in the palm of his hands. And I love the Lord. I love the Lord Jesus. I love the cross. I love the word. And I want to glorify him with my life. Boy, when I lay down to die, I hope I can look back and say, Lord, I gave you my best. You understand that? God didn't call you to succeed. He called us to faithfulness. So if you do fail in your life in the eyes of man, God might say, not to me, you're a complete success. I called you to faithfulness. I called you to obey this. I don't care if you never made any money at all. I want to glorify God. Oh man, I, this, this earth places so much emphasis on who scored the most baskets, who threw the most touchdown passes, who made the most money, who's got the biggest house, who owns the most acreage. Those things are nothingness. They mean nothing to God. But giving Him glory does. What better thing is there in a man or a woman's life than to give God the glory? You want to come at me and say, hey, man, I got the most baskets scored, Jason. I'll, I'll be polite to you. But in the back of my mind, I'll be thinking, I ain't impressed. I'm not impressed. Jason, I got the most touchdowns thrown. That's great, man. Not impressed. The Lord, all the, all the touchdowns, all the most money you made, the biggest business you built. How is it that you are glorifying God with your life? If you're still having a hard time understanding why God deserves our praise, the Bible flat out states it bluntly in the book of Revelations. Revelations 4, verse 10. Revelations 4, verse 10 states it bluntly of why God deserves our praise and our glory and our worship. Revelations 4.10 says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's why he deserves everything is for him. Everything goes to him. Even flipping burgers, even the menial tasks that you do every day, do them for the glory of God. Do them to the best of your abilities. I don't care what they are. Give glory in it. The way you keep your home, the way you run your household, the way you run your children, the way you shop for the groceries, whatever it is, do it for the glory of God. Because we were created for His pleasure. Oh, I want to please Him so much so. When I lay down to die, man, I want God to look at me and be proud. When I get up and I stand before Him, 
I want the Lord to look at me as one of His. That this man here that stands before me spent his life glorifying me. Yeah, he never amounted in the world's eyes to a good preacher. Yeah, he barely was doing a good job in the world's eyes. But in my eyes, he did what I told him to do. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. I want to glorify God. Thou art worthy. Those 24 elders says they cast their crowns at his feet. And my buddy and I were texting each other a couple weeks ago. And I texted him. We were talking about the glory of God and how much we can't wait to see him. And I texted him. I said, you know what? If I get any crowns when I make it into heaven, if I get any of them, and however many of them I get, I will football spike them as hard as I can at the feet of Jesus Christ. That's what I'll do. Because I want to glorify him. That's his majesty. That's how awesome the God is that we serve. You know, I was listening to some preaching earlier this week. This preacher got up, brought up an awesome point. Remember Saul, before he was converted, his name was Saul, and then it was changed to Paul, the apostle, who wrote most of the New Testament. He persecuted, and he hated Christians, and he would approve when Christians were murdered. He would stand there and nod and be happy. And if you remember, Christ appears to Paul, and it blinds him. He's blinded. He's struck by the brightness of this appearance of Christ who appears to Paul. Now, later in the book of Acts, Paul is testifying to King Agrippa about this incident where Christ appears to him and Paul finds salvation. He's converted from Saul to Paul. He finds salvation in the very Christ that he persecuted. And as he is testifying to this King Agrippa, he says something that you'll miss if you read it earlier in Acts. He's testifying. Now listen to this. As Paul, now where, where is all this happening? It happens all in the Middle East. What's the Middle East? It's a desert. What happens in the desert? There, it's very arid. There is no moisture in the air in a desert. So the sun there, it's like walking on the equator. It's so hot, there's no moisture in the air to reflect, reflect the rays of the sun so the sun's a hundred times brighter than it is there, than it is here. Here it's cloudy all the time. There's all kinds of moisture in the air. It knocks down some of the rays of the sun. So that's where Paul is. He's in the desert, and a blinding light comes to him, something that's brighter than the sun in the desert. Now listen, when he's testifying to King Agrippa, listen to when he says it happens. He says, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. So not only was he in the desert, it was noon when the sun is highest in the sky. This giant bright sun that burns our skin that you can't even look at. You have to have sight in there in the desert. Something blinds the light of the sun so you have this magnificent sun but yet when Christ appears it dulls the sun that's how bright God is that's how 
bright his countenance is. It blinded him. In midday, it made the sun look weak. That's why he deserves your glory. Because at midday, in a desert, when the sun is highest, and there's nothing to block those rays, that the God of heaven, that Christ can, when he appears, he makes the sun go. You know, you know that the stars are still up there right now? You can look through these windows. The stars are still there. You just can't see them because the brightness of the sun. They're still there. The sun came on the scene and dulled out those stars. Jesus came on the scene and dulled out the sun. Do you get that? That's why I want to give him glory. Because he comes on the scene and dulls out the brightness of the sun. The sun is so bright it can cause fires. And so just drive over to California. You stand around long enough just looking around. The sun will instantaneously spark something and cause millions of acres to be burned up. Whatever it was that Paul saw dulled the power of the sun. That's the God that I serve. That's the God that I want to glorify. Why? Because he deserves it. Why? Because I was created for his good pleasure. All things were created for his good pleasure. I'm put on this planet to glorify him. You're put on this planet to glorify him. Now, I do not care what you do. Maintenance man. Glorify him when you fix something. He deserves my praise. He deserves your praise. Listen to me now. This is awesome. I found this in the Bible. The first time that the Bible mentions that a person is filled with the Spirit of God is a man that I bet you none of you have heard of. Maybe a handful of you. It's a man named Bezalel. That's the first time that the Bible mentions that a person is filled with the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not saying he's the first person to ever be filled with the Spirit of God. That, that is not true. Other men were filled with the Spirit of God. But the first time the Bible records that a man is filled with the Spirit of God is Bezalel. Who in the world's Bezalel? I never heard of no Bezalel. God, if you look in the book of Exodus, God had commanded Moses to build this tabernacle. God wanted to begin to commune with his people. He gives them elaborate instructions on how to build this tabernacle, on how to build the ark, on how to build all the utensils that would be utilized, on how to, even on how to mix up and, and make the anointing oil. Very elaborate instructions he gives to Moses and says, Moses, I want this stuff made. You make me an ark and you make a mercy seat and you do it all exactly as I say. God had commanded Moses to build a tabernacle, the ark, the table, the candlesticks, the altars, anointing oil, all kinds of stuff. You can read it for yourself sometime in the book of Exodus. But listen to this now. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, and in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works. 
to work in gold, in silver, and in brass, and in cutting stones, to set them and to carve of timber, to work in all manners of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given with him Aheliab, the son of Ashamach, the, the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that were wise I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee." The tabernacle of the congregation, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is therein, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, and the table, and his furniture, and the pure candlesticks, with all his furniture, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burning offering, with all his furniture, and the laver, and his foot, the clothes of service, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments of his son, to minister in the priest's office, and the anointing oil, and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded thee that they should do." Isn't it strange that the first person that the Bible records is filled with the Spirit of God? It's not a preacher. It's not a prophet. It's not a healer. It's not someone who wrote all kinds of epistles in the Bible. It's a craftsman. It's a builder. It's a blacksmith. It's a woodworker. It's a carpenter. God says, see, I have filled him with my spirit. Why? To craft those instruments. To build. Sometimes I think that we think the only glory that God will get is from preaching or from praying or singing. The the more spiritual things. Ministering to someone. Those things do give glory to God. But it's just funny, I find it coincidental that the Bible, first time it records someone filled with the Spirit of God, is a builder, an embroiderer. Hmm. He's a craftsman, a woodworker, a blacksmith. He's filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Why? So he can craft all the instrumentation. So he can craft, so he can build. So he can use his giftings and his talents to build the tabernacle of God. Why? To give him glory. God gave Bezalel those talents. The talent to build. The talent to draw up some plans. To, to follow plans. You, if you gave me blueprints on how to build a house, I could build something, but it's not going to look like the plans that you give me. Why? That's just not my thing. Not my gifting. God had gifted these talents to this man ultimately for the glory of God so that God could begin to meet with his people. And Bezalel pours his heart and his soul into crafting these things to building this instrumentation that they would use in the tabernacle. He uses all of his abilities to make these things according to the plan that God gave to Moses. For the glory of God, because he is worthy. Later on in Exodus, chapter 35, verse verse 30. I will start bringing this to a close. Uh, Rod in the band, if you would make your way, please. It says, And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he hath filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all manner of worksmanship, listen, and to devise curious works, to work in gold, in silver, in brass, 
the cutting of stones, to set them, to carve wood, to make any manner of cunning work. Listen, he also put into his heart that he may teach. So he was a teacher too. Both he and Heliab and the son of Ashamach of the tribe of Dan. Them hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work of the engraver, of the cunning workman, of the embroiderer, and blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, and of the weaver, even to them that do any work of those that devise cunning work. The Spirit of the Lord was in him, had given them them talents to use for the kingdom of God. What talents has he given you? What talents has he given you this morning? Are you using them to glorify God? Because he is worthy. If you go on to read in Exodus 37, you'll see that Bezalel pours himself into making the ark. Man, this, this guy built the Ark of the Covenant. It held the actual Ten Commandments. Oh, he pours himself into it. Very intricate, very detailed. I believe Bezalel said to himself, This is going to be my masterpiece. I'm going to do this to the best of my ability to shine glory upon God. How is it that you do your job, brothers and sisters, on a daily basis? You think, Jason, you don't know the menial tasks I do. Yes, I do. I had a job one time where my title was tray feeder. That was my job, tray feeder. You know what that was? It was to take these trays and put them on a conveyor line. That's it. There were no other responsibilities. It was to keep putting trays on this conveyor belt. That is it. There was no other responsibilities, but when they would come to me and say, hey, take a break. I'd take a break. I'd come back. I'd put trays on this line. That was my job. It doesn't get much more menial than that. A a trained baboon could have done that job. But you know what? I'll feed those trays for the glory of God. To the best that I can do, I'll put them on there as good as one can put trays on a conveyor belt. And I'll say, God, I hope you get the glory. Someone, the first person mentioned in the Bible being filled is someone that works with their hands. To me, that's awesome. We think building something doesn't glorify God. We think our menial tasks don't glorify God. That job that you hate, maybe God's got you there to glorify Him in some way, shape, or form. A couple more scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Physically glorify Him and spiritually glorify Him. We forget that all things are made for His pleasure. God takes pleasure in watching His people work to the best of their ability. He gets pleasure out of that. Look at my son. Look at my chosen son. Look at my people working hard, doing their best. He loves that. I believe a person can glorify God working at a quick-serve restaurant. I believe that. How is it that you interact with your customers? How do you treat that building project? How do you treat your clients? The last scripture, and then I'll let the band play. says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, 
everything you do, everywhere you go, let your light shine. Why? So that God can get the glory.